I always try to leave one important thing out of the slideshow when I'm going to present. So true to form, I forgot the Bible first, so I'm just going to read it to you. This is from Acts chapter 6, and it's verses 1 to 7. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Porcherus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert, from, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed for them and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This passage presents the first obvious existential threat to the health of the young Christian church. Their ancient community was struggling with ethnic tensions. The more things change, the more they say the same. First, let me recap the story of Acts so far. In chapter 1, we get the record of Jesus' ascension. In chapter 2, the Spirit comes at Pentecost and thousands come to Christ. Chapter 3, Peter and John pray for a lame man who is healed and still more join the fellowship. Chapter 4, Peter and John are taken to jail by the temple guard because their preaching has caused a disruption. They are beaten and released, and the believers pray for boldness. In chapter 5, there's a uh, a record of the warning of Ananias and Sapphira. More signs and wonders occur, and others are brought to Christ before Peter and John are arrested again, beaten again, and released again. And now, after all this growth, all this growth, there's conflict in the church. There was a long-standing practice, going back to the times of the Old Testament, of caring for widows in the community. And now, the Greek-speaking Jews are complaining that their widows are not being looked after as well as the Aramaic-speaking Jews. Aramaic was just a language closely related to Hebrew. Uh, A few changes took place over the centuries, so it earned its own own name. This ethnic tension had been going on for a while. You may remember that after his very first sermon in his own hometown, a group of people attempted to publicly lynch Jesus. A lynching is just a term for a type of public execution. They took him to the, edge of the, to the edge of a cliff and attempted to throw him over. And I thought some of my sermons had bombed. I didn't get any death threats. I guess I'm ahead of the game on that score. But what did he say that made them so angry? He reminded them that there had been times, many times in the history of Israel, when Israel was suffering, but, God, but that God had nevertheless shown mercy on... Wait for it. Non-Jewish people. 
For this, people attempted to execute him. So yeah, the relationship between Jews and non-Jewish people could be a bit of a powder keg. But just to be clear, the situation in Acts, here virtually everyone was Jewish, but they'd come from different cultures. The whole point of Pentecost was that people who spoke many different languages came together. It was a beautiful reversal of the Tower of Babel, where people split apart because of their different languages. But now their different languages but now their differences were threatening to tear them apart. Interestingly, there was likely a larger number of Greek-speaking outsiders in the early church than there were Aramaic speakers who had made up the core of the church at first. A lot of Jewish people who were born far away moved to the Jewish homeland near the end of their life because they wanted to be buried close to Jerusalem. Some of them became Christians, so there was a decent number of older Greek-speaking people, and inevitably, this was going, there was going to be a significant number of widows among them. I mean, after all, they had moved there because they were old enough to die. The real potential, there was in this a real potential for a fellowship-ending division on this issue. At Pentecost, the Spirit had brought all of these different, wonderful ethnicities together, and now there was threat of, a serious threat of division in the body of Christ along ethnic lines. What to do? Wisely, the apostles decided to tackle the issue head-on, but very tactfully. They summoned everyone in the church for a meeting. I noticed when I was reading through this text that the word that Luke uses... That's not my thought, no. It's always, it's always mine going off. I noticed when I was reading through this text that the word that Luke uses when they summon or call together the church was used just a few sentences ago in the story. The apostles themselves have been summoned by the, by the Jewish leaders in chapter 5. Uh, sorry, in, in chapter 5, the apostles have been arrested for preaching, and verse 40 reads, And when they had called in, the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, in chapter 6, the apostles are the ones in the position of power. They're the ones. Uh, (laughs) Now, in chapter 6, the apostles are the ones in the position of power. They're the ones in a position to do the summoning. Here, the apostles call together, Poskelosomenoi, the church, and the way they use power is very instructive. They didn't hog the power for themselves and, or throw their weight around as apostles. Instead, they call the church together and give the whole fellowship the power to solve the most difficult problem that the young church has so far faced. Now, I need to mention this because, after all, this is a Baptist church and we believe that the biblical example for how to make church decisions is based on the whole congregation deciding together. The word for choosing is the important... Uh, the word for choosing is... Episkepsa, sorry. Epi, now, now that I'm saying, saying, I said this like a hundred times. Episkepsaste. Um, the word, as anyways, the word for choosing is episkepsaste. The important part of our, the important part for our church is that little bit at the end, the ste. That's the bit that makes it say. Just one more slide. That's the bit that makes it say. Um, 
you all choose. Not I choose or we choose, but you all choose. But this passage is so much more than an opportunity for scoring debate points on whose type of church is the best. Look at the character of the apostles and look at the character of the deacons. There's something in them that we need today. Right now, the world is fairly obsessed with power. When I was studying to teach English to high schoolers, one of the main focuses was critical literacy, which has the idea that we should interrogate the text and analyze the power dynamics assumed by the author as he tells the stories, or even the characters as they inhabit the world of the story. Whose point of view is being privileged, and whom is the author marginalizing? I'm in this class and I'm thinking, well, you don't think we should just sort of teach the kids to read the story and talk about what happens? Or something like that? We should instead spend some time talking about who's not in the story? And talk about how, because they're not in the story, see, their point of view is being ignored. Or the point of view that they would have if they were in the story, that's what's being ignored. Or marginalized. Okay, I guess I'll get to that lesson if I have time. Uh, I only mention that as an example of how obsessed our culture is with looking at everything through the lens of power. I mean, the people in the story aren't even real. It's, you know, fiction. But as they say, if the only tool you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Increasingly, the only, or at least the primary way that many people are interested in understanding the world has to do with power. The question of who holds power over whom is one of the main questions that students at university are taught to ask in many classes, and it's central to how people have come to analyze society. And in our text the apostles certainly had a legitimate claim to power. They could have micromanaged the whole process. After all, they were the ones who had lived with Jesus for three years and nobody else had that on their CV. But instead, they chose to give up the power while still showing real leadership. They did offer a solution. They said the church should recruit people, deacons, who will lead the effort to minister to all the widows to make sure that everyone is included. But then the apostles gave the power of deciding who those deacons would be to the church. And then, look what happens. The church follows the example of the apostles. The Greek widows are being left out, so what does the church do? They elect seven deacons, and every one of them has a Greek name. The apostles give the power of decision-making to the church at large, and the church gives the power to the weakest in their community. The Greek speakers, the ones who are being excluded... Bam! No analysis of power dynamics is required. Just people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who want to do the right thing. I mentioned that the church followed the example of the apostles. But of course, that raises the question, where did the apostles, the men who just spent three years with Jesus, where could they have gotten their idea of servant leadership? Hmm... Obviously, the examples of the servant heart of Jesus are too many to count, but a couple came quickly to mind as I thought about this. I thought of the passage in the Gospel of John which says of Jesus, Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Foot washing was necessary, but many Jews considered it such a lowly task that Jewish people could not ask their own Jewish servants to do it. Only a Gentile dog, as the Gentiles were referred to, could be asked to do such a menial menial task. And here is the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the hoped-for great king of Israel, wrapping a towel around his waist and cleaning his disciples' feet. Jesus perfectly expressed God's love for his people, and that love expressed itself with deep humility. This is where the apostles learned their selflessness. They had a three-year master class in the love of God. This was, and there was one other instance from the life of Christ that sprang to mind when I, thought of, when I thought of where the apostles would have seen a supreme example of selflessness. Now, just to set the context, the Jewish leaders had made it very clear that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. He had no military ambition, so clearly, in their thinking, he wasn't the guy who was going to free them from the Romans. It's obvious where this type of thinking is going to go. They're going to reject Jesus, and then, sooner or later, form some revolt against Rome that will lead to their own destruction. And that's exactly what happened to Israel about three decades after Jesus was crucified. Hundreds of thousands of Jews died in a revolt against Rome. And on his way to his death, Jesus can see the pain that is coming to Israel because the leaders have rejected their Messiah. Luke describes the scene at the end of Luke describes the scene at the end of his gospel. Jesus has been turned over to the Romans, and he has been flogged and forced to carry his own carry his cross to the place where he will be executed. As he stumbles towards Golgotha, he looks and he sees the last of his followers. His friends have abandoned him, but there is a small group of women, including his mother, who are huddled together mourning as they watch the horrific spectacle of his death. And he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for a time will come when you will say, Blessed are the childless women, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Can it be real? Can someone be that good? He's been tortured, and he's on his way to his death. And his thoughts are on the pain that is coming to others who are helpless. I feel like that passage alone makes the case for Jesus' deity as well as any other passage. How could he not be God? That heart, that kind of heart is not of this world. That is the man who taught the disciples not to grasp after power, but to look after the weak. And the apostles modeled that heart for the young church. And that church chose deacons who, as we'll see in the coming chapters, not only attended to the, hurt of the exi- to the hurt that existed in the church, but they went on to profoundly reshape the world around them. It looked like the young church was in real trouble. But the healing that came from the spirit-filled humility of the leaders spilled over into the larger community. Soon, the church was infecting everything it touched in that broken world with the wellness and the healing that it had experienced through God's Spirit. The apostles blessed the weak, but they did so without being paternalistic or condescending. In the coming days and weeks, you and I will be presented with opportunities, if only by God's grace we open our eyes 
for humility. We'll have opportunities to show love and to trust God's Spirit to work in the lives of others without our having to order them about. We don't know what those opportunities will look like because we don't know the future. The only thing we know is that if our hearts are in the right place, if we humbly seek God, if we delight in the fact that His Spirit has been poured out into the hearts of believers, we can eagerly expect to be used by God. We have a role to play by God's grace. We can bring some of the brokenness and division in the world. We can heal some of the brokenness and division in the world. Or rather, we can be the conduit through which God's Spirit heals the divisions and the pain in our world.